I want you to picture a scene, a make-believe one, in the Howell home. Imagine this week a new and unusual-looking letter comes into the mail. I retrieve the letter from the mailbox. The whole family's doing arts and crafts, as they often do, around the kitchen table. I walk into the house with the mail in my hands, and I say, Kids, look, it's a big, shiny letter that came into the mail. I almost certainly would imagine that my kids would be wondering, if not saying out loud, Dad, who's it to? Well, the letter is addressed to me, Philip Howell. Well, where's it from? The return address is the Dude Perfect headquarters in Frisco, Texas. Now, in our little scenario here, you need to understand a little context. For those of you that don't know, Dude Perfect has become one of the most popular and successful YouTube channels. The Dudes are five Christian young men who met in college and turned a few viral videos into a now multi-million dollar entertainment company. And our family enjoys watching these videos in light of that context. What do you think my kids would say or do if tomorrow I walk into the house with a large, shiny envelope to Philip Howell from the Dude Perfect headquarters? Would they say, oh, nice, Dad, and then go back to coloring, drawing, arts and crafts? Would they shush me and say, Dad, how rude, excuse you, but we were in a very important conversation. Keep your male news to yourself. The answer is not a chance. There would be interest, curiosity, excitement, delight. They would drop whatever they're doing or talking about, get out of their seats. They would crowd around me and they would demand, Dad, open the letter. What does it say? That's the scene. Can you imagine that kind of excitement about news received, a letter being opened? Each week, as you open your Bible to the letter that we call 1 John, I'm praying that from here till Easter, your excitement, your anticipation for opening up God's word, reading it together, will easily match, if not exceed, the kind of anticipation I just described. So if you've not done so yet, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. This can be found on page 959 in those black Bibles. And I'll be reading for us the whole first chapter. We will be paying specifically our attention to verse 5. And this will be the final of our single-verse sermons, at least as it's mapped and planned out from here till Easter. We've been doing this through Advent, and then we have one final introductory verse that will help us set the stage for the rest of 1 John. I believe verse 5 is a bridge transition verse. It's included in the introduction, but it's also setting up what's about to be said. So follow along as I read the entire chapter and notice the hinge that happens in verse 5. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have received from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And that'll end our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. My prayer for us is that he will allow you the opportunity to joyfully receive the message that has come from God and is about God. Amen? In fact, that is not just a prayer. It's another way of stating what I think is a simple one-sentence summary of verse 5. To say it again, this message is for you. It is from him. It is about him. This message is for you. It is from him, and it is about him. Now, as I explain this one simple little sentence, I want you to have that scene I just began the message with in your mind, and those three burning questions from my children Dad, who's it to? Where's it from? Who's, who sent it? And then after hearing the answer to question one, and then the answer to question two, the jumping out of the seats, the excitement, the demanding, what does it say? The answers from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 is that it's for you. It's from him. It's about him. Let's start with question number one, point number one. The message is for you. Verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and we proclaim to you. That's our first point. To you. Who's it for? The answer is to you. But technically, this message was not written or delivered to you all sitting in the pews at Embassy Church. It was not written during this time period. Embassy Church did not exist when it was written. The United States of America did not exist. The letter wasn't even written in English. If I mailed you a letter or sent you an email this week and the entire thing was in some language that you did not even know, you might be tempted to think it was some kind of mistake. 
This letter is not for me. It was not written to me. But actually, this is a fundamental principle for the entire Bible. The Bible was not written to you directly, first, historically, but it is for you. That distinction, although seeming obvious and simple on the surface, is crucial for accurately receiving the message. If I received a letter from Dude Perfect, and it was technically addressed only to Philip Howell, but then we open the content of the message inside of the letter, and it invited my entire family to come down to Frisco, Texas, and spend time with them for a week. Do you think my children would feel slighted? Well, it didn't say it was to me. Would any of their shoulders drop or their heads bow in disappointment, sulking? It wasn't to me. No. As long as they understood the basic simple principle that even though it was not written to them directly first, but that the invitation applied to them, included them, I don't suspect their joy or excitement would be diminished in the slightest, nor should yours. Even though John, writing this letter, did not write and handwrite your name, anticipating 2,000 years from now that you'd be reading that letter, your joy should not be diminished. It's for you. And again, as basic and as obvious as this might be for many of you, I am deeply concerned pastorally that many of you are going to need this simple reminder. 1 John was first written to a certain people in a certain context, at a certain time and place. It wasn't written to you, but it is for you. For instance, I could imagine this fake scenario, dude perfect, opening the letter, the entire family coming down to Texas, meeting each of the dudes, hanging out with them in their homes, and starting this friendship, I could imagine two responses to a letter like that. I would imagine you could too. One of them would be excitement. Probably the younger of the children would be like, great! The older kids might be like, suspicious. Dad, how do we know that this is not a scam or a prank? How do we know that one of the church members didn't think this would be a funny joke? There's got to be a catch. Why would they invite us? You don't know them. They don't know you. In the same way, I am troubled because I am anticipated that throughout the sermon series of 1 John, some of you will immediately receive the message with enthusiasm, excitement, joy, and worship, as you should. You know that God is the one who sent the message. And even though that it wasn't directly delivered to you the very first time it was sent, you understand you are included in the invitation. And so, as you think through the reality, the weight behind the contrast between these two examples, the kind of joy and excitement that would be received when an invitation to come and spend time with the creator of the universe is being delivered every single Sunday. You're being welcomed to hang out at his house It's not a scam. It's not a prank. God really does want you to come. And this will lead to great joy. In fact, this invitation is so good, so much better than any celebrity inviting you over to their house, anybody you might admire, even just a good friend, family member for the holidays. 
It's so, so much better than all of those things that that's the very reason why some of you will struggle to receive it. It's too good. Or to put it another way, the way that I've heard from some of you, I'm not good enough to be included. Let me give you a very specific example. It's one of many, and it'll be hopefully highlighting the very kind of concern I'm trying to place my finger on. Turn your Bibles over to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, I want to illustrate with these two verses the first point. Starting in verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Those are the two verses. They illustrate the important lesson that the Bible was written for you. The specific struggle I'm talking about is not atheism. It's not distrust in the truthfulness or reliability of the Bible. It's about a committed church member, a regular attender of embassy. People who believe that God exists and that he is perfectly good, as verse 5 says. There is no sin in him. I'm already well aware the majority of you in the room already believe in God. And if you didn't, you probably wouldn't be here today. All of you who are members of this church, we've already asked you what you think about God and sin and Jesus. You've explained you're a committed believer in the gospel. Yet there will be those of you who will struggle with verse 6, not verse 5. Yes, I believe he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. But when it says in verse 6 that no one abides in him keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him, you will read that verse, you will hear me preach things like this, because it will happen repeatedly in this sermon series. It will seem to you very straightforward. Black and white. I'm a Christian. I believe verse 5. I have the true confession of the true gospel. So far, so good. But I look at my life, and I keep on sinning. Since I keep on sinning, it must be that I'm not really a Christian. And that's where the logic ends. Struggling with the same old sins. It just has nothing to do with my belief in God, what sin is or isn't, Jesus, resurrection, ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you enthusiastically believe Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He died on a cross to take away your sins. But as you look at your own life, you're tempted to think, but clearly, according to verse 6, I must not be a Christian. What I'm trying to say in this specific sermon, and we'll try at different times to tease out as we work through this book, is that 90, this is very unscientific, 90 to 99% of you, when you have this conversation with me, and I've had many of these conversations with members of Embassy Church, I am quickly concluding that you are a child of God struggling with sin and how to apply God's word to your life, not that you're not a Christian. 
Even the very fact that in these conversations, I repeatedly say the same things. So if any of you have had this conversation, you'll know. I'll say, well, did you know I have this conversation quite a lot with people? And then they say, really, you do? I thought I was the only one. No, plenty of people are struggling with this basic idea. But I think fundamentally it is an idea that is rooted in your inability to apply God's word to your specific situation. Again, the Bible was not written to you. He has a specific situation in mind when he says what he does in verse 6. Or, look back at chapter 1. Who is John talking about? Who is he talking to? And what situation does he have in mind when he says that God is light in verse 5 and then transition quickly to verse 6? If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Well, if I've sinned, then that means I'm walking in the darkness. If I say I'm a Christian and I sinned, well, then I've lied. I must not be practicing the truth. That's the basic logic. And you can do this again and again through 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. Whoever goes around saying, I know him, but he does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And each and every one of you are thinking, I don't walk like Jesus. I do not feel perfect. It says perfect in there, doesn't it? Clearly, I'm not a Christian. The question I'm asking is, but is he writing to you? Are these words directed toward your specific situation of struggle with sin? Or are they directed toward people who are not struggling with sin? They love their sin. That's where the whole sermon series, you have to come back and find out. But if you've gotten my gist so far, spoiler alert, those of you struggling with sin are showing that you are a Christian. Those of you that are not struggling with sin, you love your sin, but you're going around calling yourself a Christian. That's who he's talking to. If I could be even more pointed to make sure that what I'm saying does not sound like, well, that just sounds like your interpretation, Pastor Phil. It is my interpretation based on 1 John. I've been reading and rereading the entire book from beginning to end over and over. Have you? Here's my question. Who is he talking to in what situation? Answer, chapter 2, verse 18 and following. Please turn there. Who is he talking to and what is the situation? How might that inform what will be for us a message from him and about him? We could choose different passages, but this one is the best, so we'll just choose this one. Please follow along as I read verses 18 to 25. This is the context, the purpose of the letter, the to and the historical situation. Children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard, that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. They would be, claimed that, be plain that they are not all not of us. Verse 20. 
But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. We will spend an entire sermon unpacking this. But before we get to that point, if we have five previous messages where people are taking 1 John like a bazooka and blowing up their faith to say, well, must not be a Christian, then we're going to have a lot of difficult pastoral conversations that aren't necessary. If we would just clear the table of all of your preconceived ideas and realize that this message of 1 John, the, the letter that is being opened and then being read and written, historically speaking, is written to children two believers. They've been told already and heard, this is according to verse 18, that there are people that will come that are anti-Christ, anti-Christ. Quite literally, this phrase means against the Messiah. Now, ask yourself just a simple historical question. Who are the kind of people that would be interested in the Messiah? Answer, Jewish people, Israelites, people that are waiting for a Messiah. What sort of people would be called children who are waiting for a Messiah? Well, in this case, it would be those who have heard warnings about the Messiah, and more than likely, it's referring to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 about the coming of those who would be false teachers. But those that would be fitting for this language are those who would be Jewish people who have heard about a coming Messiah, They've placed their faith in Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah. And we know it's the last hour because there are many people who have opposed Jesus of Nazareth being the awaited Messiah. There are those, verse 19 says, that have received this message, been a part of the church community for a little while, but then they left. They went out. If they would have really been a Christian, a real believer of the Messiah, they would have remained with us because this is the truth. This is the light. But they went out showing that they're in the darkness. And how they went out is by being against the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The man from Mary and the virgin birth, that Jesus, he is the final long-awaited hope of the prophets the Son of God, sent from heaven, human flesh, fully God in human body, rescuing people from their sins. The people that left that he is addressing in this black and white contrast are people that are rejecting the very basics of the gospel. Who is the liar, verse 22 says? Well, the liar that I'm talking about is the one that denies Jesus being the Messiah. That's the antichrist, the against the Messiah. And by denying the Son, you deny the Father, etc., etc. In other words, this is one example of 
situating the letter in its actual context. Who are those, according to verse 6 of chapter 1, that are walking in the darkness? Who's the one that's not abiding in the vine of Christ and bearing fruit? Who's the one that makes a practice of sinning? Answer, people rejecting the basic gospel. The simple message of God sending his son into the world, taking on human flesh, dying for sins, rising again from the dead, ascending fleshly in human form and forever living as a human for all time until he returns. Historically, Bible scholars, early history historians have determined that they believe that these people who have left this local community, these former Jews, kind of flirted with the local church. They were in it for a little bit, but then they left and they've chosen, no, we are rejecting the gospel. They would later become known as Gnostics. For those of you who know anything about Gnosticism, it's the Greek word for gnosis. If you don't know anything about it, it just means people that believed that Jesus did point to a way, but the deeper, higher spiritual truths, the secret knowledge of the mysteries of heaven are found not in the human Jesus Christ, not in the God-man, but in the spirit that was inside of him. The spirit that came down at his baptism, that was the true Messiah. The spirit that ascended to heaven, not the human God-man that ascended to heaven. That's Gnosticism in a nutshell. And that's the very thing that John is addressing. He is saying that if you reject the full revelation of God found in the union of the Son of God becoming human, you're walking in darkness. And it makes sense that if you say, well, this isn't just a doctrinal letter. It's ethical. It's about love. It's about loving each other. It's because the Gnostic belief was that the created world, the material physical body of Jesus was part of the evil corruption of this world. And that the earth and all the goodness of creation that you and I as basic Christians affirm that in the beginning God created the world and the last verse of chapter 1 of Genesis says, and it was, say it church, very good. Do you believe that? Do you believe in the goodness of creation? These Gnostic detractors of the early church, they did not. They believed that flesh was bad. And Jesus, he could not be the Messiah if he is going to forever be tethered to flesh. So they rejected him when they kept preaching that the man, Jesus Christ, was fully God, fully man, died on a cross, buried into the ground, rose again from the dead, and will forever hold flesh to his spiritual body. Does that sound like you? Like, does that accurately describe you? And are you living in darkness of sin because you think it really doesn't matter what we do with our flesh, it's all corrupt anyway. What really matters is some kind of mental mind game, some kind of spiritual ascent of the soul to heaven in a non-bodily way. If that's not you, then you should go, whew, praise God, I believe the gospel. I'm struggling with sin. Uh, welcome to the club. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. What does it say? My children, I'm writing so that you won't sin, but I know that you will sin, so put your eyes on Jesus, the ascended one, who's at the Father's right hand in human flesh. The incarnate, resurrected Lord is your intercessor, your advocate. Do you believe that? It's the gospel. It's the basic gospel. 
Is there room for you to struggle with sin and you sometimes get discouraged by that? Absolutely. First, John's not talking about you then. He's talking about people that have rejected Jesus completely. And yes, there are people that will do that by just making up a certain form of Jesus, whether it's Gnostic or not, and they'll live however they want. But people that have as a basic commitment that the truth, the light, the true revelation is summed up. All things in the Bible are summed up in him, Jesus. And we're coming to him every Sunday to receive from him the life, the life eternally in his commandments. And you have that basic commitment like, yep, he determines what's right and wrong. He knows what's good and bad. And I'm going to submit myself to him. And that's why I'm at church. Then you're a Christian. You've repented of sin. You've had the light of the gospel come into your heart. And that's what 1 John is trying to say, as best as I can in these introductory sermons, sum up for you. So please, please don't think, I'm not a Christian because I struggle with sin. Key word is, do you struggle? Do you hate it? Here's again, basic move. I've done this a dozen times easily through the years. Pastor Phil, after listening to the sermon, I just kind of wondered, how could I be a Christian? Does God really love me? Look at this pattern of sin in my life. And I say, brother, sister, the fact that you would like to confess your sin to a pastor is kind of the very evidence that 1 John gives that you're a Christian. Non-Christian people that have rejected Jesus don't really care about confessing sin to their pastor. They're not concerned about the eternal state of their soul. This is all the fact that we're having this conversation, solid evidence that you love God and you're just trying to maintain to abide in the vine. So please, receive this, Embassy Church. This is for you. It wasn't written to you, but it's for you. This is what John is talking about. It's, it's really, it's the basic gospel. Do you believe it? Is it life to you? Are you clinging with all of your might to say, give me Jesus, give me Jesus? Do you hate your sin when you sin? Do you have even ambivalence towards sin where you're like, I hate it, and then sometimes it seems like I love it. Do I hate it or do I love it? It's tricky sometimes, but don't read the Bible and quickly just look at yourself and then say, well, clearly I'm not a Christian. I believe that the entire letter of 1 John is not to be a bazooka blast toward crushing your assurance of salvation. It is to be a bazooka blast to encourage your faith in Jesus and blow away your unbelief, to recenter you on the gospel. So, going back to what I said previously, if there are members of our church, if it's you right now, and you look at 1 John 3, 5, and it says, you know, you believe that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, you're like, yeah, I believe that. I believe in the basic gospel. Then verse 6 is not directly targeted, more than likely, there will be exceptions, to you as a struggler sinner. The kind of abiding is just, Repenting and believing, repenting and believing, trusting, looking to Jesus. That's why this message is for you. And I hope you'll really receive it. Not just today, but as we start walking through the practical nitty-gritty details of, so what does it look like to be a Christian that believes the basic gospel? The simple message that God has died for you in the fleshly body of Jesus Christ. The darkness swallowed him up. And he burst through the dark grave of the tomb on the other side. Do you believe that? Does it encourage you ever? 
Abide in that. Walk in it. Confess your sin. Walk in the light. The light of the truth and the reality of the risen, resurrected, ascended, coming judge. It's for you. It's from him. This is the message. This is point two. We've heard from him. Proclaim to you. Discussed that it was written to a certain people, but it is for you. Now, the message that we've heard from him. And I'm really going to combine the last two questions. This is the message that we've heard from him, that God is light. Have we heard that from him? What's it say? We're crowded around the envelope. We're ready to open the Bible. What's it say? What's the message? This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you. Some scholars even argue that this is John's way of using a different word, but very similar, like a synonym. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the message. I wonder how many of you have ever thought about it this way. 1 John 1.5, in the most compact, concentrated, distilled sort of way, is summarizing for us the whole message of the Bible. This is the message. It's God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the message. That's John's way of summarizing the whole Bible. I think so. It's that dense. It's that concentrated and compact. And we'll spend the rest of the sermon series hopefully realizing why this is such a suiting, fitting way to talk about the gospel. But first, it's from him. Jesus. Slowly walk backwards. Look carefully. Verse 5 says, this is the message we've heard from him. From who? The apostles? From the Father? From the Holy Spirit? No, just walk backwards from him. This is the message. That our joy will be complete. Keep walking backwards. And we are writing these things. And then the last time we were given a proper noun here, it's his son, Jesus Christ. Grammatically, you don't just have to guess. You can just read the flow of the sentence from verse 3 at the end. His son, Jesus Christ. We've heard it from him. This is from Jesus. This is from the God-man was passed on to John and the apostles. And this is what I think is happening in verses 1 through 4. This we language. Notice verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have took, touched with our hands and concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest. And then notice again, we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was was made manifest to us, plural, that which we have seen and heard, we are now proclaiming to you, so that you too would have fellowship with us, plural, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we, collectively, are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And this is the message that we have heard, and it's from him, and we proclaim it to you. After verse 5, with one, maybe two exceptions, The we language, the collective we, it drops. You see it in 2-1, if you just look down. My little children, I, personal, single, singular, I'm writing these things to you. And then look at the little poem in chapter 2. 
12 to 14, the indented texts in the ESV, I am writing to you. Verse 13, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you. Notice the repetition of the I, and it continues throughout. It's the most common way he's going to talk. John, individually, is writing this. So then it makes us wonder, who's the we? And the answer is that the message, it's centered from Jesus Christ. It was then delivered to eyewitness apostles. And in light of the background I gave you in point one, I hope that it will, like, light bulbs, pun intended, start shining as you read 1 John. Why is it important to emphasize to a pre-Gnostic, secret-loving, we-want-mysteries-and-hidden-messages-from-God kind of people? Do you guys know these people? They're, the, the, the Gnostic kind of people are still around in the Christian church today. They're like, I don't really need the Bible or the gospel. Let's move on from that. Let's get a special word from God. Just, you know, me and him. You guys know those kind of people? Have you ever been those kind of people? Some of you are here and you've repented that you were those kind of people. That's what the Gnostic people are like. Let's move beyond Jesus. Let's actually talk about this secret, special way to the truth, the real truth, the real light. John is saying, guys, I'm going to make this real simple for you. The message that we've received, it's from Jesus. And we have it because we are public eyewitnesses of the incarnation of the public testimony that he's the God-man. He rose again from the dead. We touched him. Remember Thomas? He wondered, was it really Jesus? And then he put his hands in the nail prints, and he's like, yep, that's my Lord and my God. Do you see the contrast? Public, historical, not in dark shadows, caves, secret hiding places, but just plain available to all. If you're poor, it's for you. If you're weak, it's for you. Not educated, for you. Do you see how point one goes together with point two? This message, it's for you, as in the collective you, the whole earth, the whole world. It's for you. The offer, the extent of the gospel, it can be given to all of you. Why? It's public. It's known. It can be scrutinized, examined, looked at, beheld. Verse 1 says, the first John. And we were testifying. It's true. Do you believe in the gospel primarily because you heard a special secret little whisper in your ear that no one else got? You're probably more Gnostic. Do you believe the gospel because you realize that God decided to come in bold, public, crystal clear revelation, and it's summed up in Jesus. It's about him. It's from him. Did Jesus ever talk this way? Did Jesus ever talk about light, darkness? It's actually John's gospel, the longer account of the story of Jesus, where we get tons of these little quotes and sayings from Jesus himself about light, about the gospel. For instance, the well-known John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he might be saved. The world would be saved through Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And then check this transition to light and darkness language. And this is the judgment. 
the light has come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, they hate the light and they do not come to the light lest their works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true, they come into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Or as Marilyn read for us, if you skip a few chapters, John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to this crowd of people and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And we could go on and on and continue. Jesus himself gave the message that he is the light. This message, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, setting up for the rest of the book. This message, it's from him. It's for you. It's about him. He's the light. Light. What does John mean by light? We open up the letter. We open up 1 John. What are we going to see? What's it about? Dad, what's it say? What's the letter say? Answer, Jesus Christ is the light of God's revelation. He is life. In the darkness, in the middle of the night, maybe you've ever had this experience. you got to go to the bathroom. It's like 2 a.m. in the morning. Everything is pitch black, dark. You grab your cell phone next to you. And you turn on the flashlight so you don't stumble and trip and fall. You're like half awake, half asleep. You don't want to bang your head or hurt yourself. And then let's just say for the sake of example, you went back to bed, put your phone down, and your flashlight, you forgot to turn it off. If you go the entire day, walking around, texting people, your flashlight's still on. Sun's up. Lights are on in the house. Do you think anybody's going to be, um, hey, Phil, your flashlight's on? I guarantee it. Like, hey, you know your flashlight's on? Like, it's the middle of the day. I don't think you need your flashlight, buddy. First John is saying this. Hey, everybody. I know that the Torah, the law, the Jewish scriptures, they were like a flashlight in the darkness. But there are some people, false teachers, they're anti-Christ. They're going around and they're telling you, no, no, the sun hasn't risen yet. We still need flashlights. Don't listen to them, John's going to say. Don't listen to them. You don't need a flashlight when the sun comes up. But also, don't listen to them. Their flashlight, it's not the real one. It's fake. It's broken. They say they've got this great light, but actually they're still walking in the darkness. John is writing a letter to make sure that you all understand. Resurrection, ascension of the incarnate Son of God is the fullness of God's light and revelation. Everything that he could possibly want to say has been summed up in him. So you would look like a fool, and you are a fool, and I mean this in all sincerity, if you're going around thinking, oh, we still need light. Nope. The light has risen from the grave. The fullness of revelation has come. The flashlight was just a shadow of the substance of Christ. It was pointing forward to him. The other key image as it came out, even in that passage that Marilyn read for us from John 8, 12, 
is that light is life. This is the message that we got from him. And what's the message verse 2 says in 1 John? That the word of life was made manifest. And he is the eternal life. Light and life. That's the message we proclaim. Do you guys remember that from a few weeks back? For those of you that were here? We proclaim the word of life. The life and the light of the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, in case the light darkness did not capture your imagination or kindle the love of your God in your heart, let's talk about health and life. Let's say you're battling a terminal disease. You need treatments, procedures. These treatments and procedures are good, they're helpful, they're going to help fight the disease. But then, the day has come. It's been figured out. The complete cure of the disease has been found and discovered. Do you keep, your can- do you keep or cancel your treatment appointment if you have the cure? These False teachers, these antichrist people, are going around after exploring the Christian message and saying, no, no, that's not the cure. Nope. We've got a new treatment. It's better than the old treatments. And that Jesus thing, he is not the cure. Come to us. Listen to us. And John is trying to tell all of you, for you today, don't listen to them. Don't listen to their message. You don't need treatments. You don't need another pill to take when you have the cure in Christ. Furthermore, don't listen to them. Their treatments are a sham. It's fake. They say it's new and improved, but it's actually going to spread the disease. It will lead you further into the darkness. Brothers and sisters, this message is for you. The message for you to know that Jesus Christ's death on a cross, when the darkness covered on the noonday, the intersection between light and darkness, we just sang about it in that song, In Christ Alone, the light of man became dark, buried in the tomb. Do you understand that the reason that Jesus Christ is the light is paradoxically because he took on sin. He went into the darkness for us. That's the cure to the disease of darkness. So cling to him. Trust in him. Rightly and accurately apply the gospel to your life. It will and should be the basic rhythm of the Embassy Church discipleship agenda. The gospel. Not just Uh, The simple repetition of similar words again and again, but drawing in and deeper and higher to the hypostatic union of the God-man Jesus Christ, the, the fullness of what God has to say, the radiant purity of God's holiness and the standard of right and wrong. It's all summed up in the man, Jesus Christ. In various times and in various ways, God spoke through the prophets, dreams and visions, words, But in these last days, he has spoken definitively and finally and the clearest that God could ever speak in his son. And that's our aim. 
That's our mission. That's our vision. That's why we proclaim this truth. That's what First John Sermon Series is all going to be about. And yes, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of things that we need to work out. But that's the agenda that we need to set for the next new year from January, first Sunday of January through Easter. Would you bow in prayer with me now? Our Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves now in a posture of prayer. We do so because we know the great extent that you have traveled, gone to, the lengths at which you worked in order to give for us a free gift of salvation. The pain and the suffering that was born on a cross as Jesus hung on a tree. The way that you dealt with darkness and death and sin. Lord, we pray that all the answers, all of the, the longings, all of the desires for truth, they would always be tethered, flowing from what we've already received in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Help us to see the sufficiency of the gospel as a church. Not something to move on, not something to pass over, not something to say that we've ever heard that one before, but that the depth of the gospel is the mystery that we only drive further down into. Oh God, we want to pray that your Holy Spirit would convict anybody in here that's walking in the darkness of rejection of Jesus, either with their words or, or their belief systems or the evidence by the fact that they just want to live however they want and don't see Jesus as Lord, exalted, ruler over all. Lord, convict them of their sin. Help them see how dark the darkness really is. May their sin taste sour. And Lord, may they see the sweetness of forgiveness cleansing from all righteousness, hope of a new body, new desires with this new resurrected life that we'll have forever and eternity. Oh God, help all of us see the massive gift of this invitation. Greater than any celebrity, person of power, the most admirable, the most lovely, the most excellent and worthy that exists, the one who is light, doesn't just do good things, but is goodness defined. He is welcoming us to fellowship, to hang out in his home. Lord, I pray that that would just be such an encouraging reminder that that's the offer at the table. And I pray we would take it and receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. In his name and for his glory, we pray. Amen.